Welcome back to Podcasting the Urban, a five-part series where we turn the academic gaze back onto our own podcasting practice. I'm Dallas Rogers from City Road Podcast. In the next two episodes, we shift gears a little bit to hear from two journalists and two academics about podcasting as an engaged research methodology and the politics of representation and voice. This Podcasting Cities A User Guide panel discussion was held in Sydney on September 13 as part of the Festival of Urbanism. The speakers are Anya Kangeiser, Justine Lloyd, Miles Herbert and Shane Anderson. And we'll also hear from Liz Taylor. For full speaker bios, see our website at cityroadpod.org. We asked the panel questions like, what's more important? Buying the right podcasting equipment or telling a good story with whatever podcasting equipment you have? And at the end of the discussion, we turn to ethics and whether journalism or academic ethics should guide our podcasting practice. And here's a heads up. The answer is neither. So here is the first part of our panel discussion. Excellent. Okay, uh, thanks everyone for joining us. I'm really excited to be chairing this panel discussion today. We've got a very simple format. What we're going to do is play you some audio and then get the panel to talk about it. And then right at the end, you'll get to ask all the questions that are at the tip of your tongue. So I'm going to jump straight into it. I'm going to start playing some audio and then we'll throw to the panel. Let's go. My name's Dr. Donna Houston. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Geography and Planning at Macquarie University. If you walk down a narrow laneway in the vicinity of Martin Place and George Street in the Sydney CBD, you will encounter a canopy of 120 empty bird cages suspended between the towering skyscrapers. The installation is titled Forgotten Songs. It is designed by the artist Michael Thomas Hill, originally for a Laneway Arts Festival. It is now a permanent installation in Angel Place, commissioned by the City of Sydney. The installation explores how Sydney's fauna has evolved and adapted to coexist with increased urbanisation, inviting contemplation of the city's past, its underlying landscape and the sustainability issues associated with increased urban development. I last encountered Forgotten Songs a few months ago during lunchtime in the CBD. Well-dressed office workers glided under the empty cages without so much as a glance upward. Nor did they glance downward to the names of the absent birds etched into the pavement. Eastern Whitbird, Fantail Cuckoo, Leaden Flycatcher, Variegated Fairy Wren, Powerful Owl, White-Throated Nightjar, Tawny Frogmouth, and so on. The daytime bird songs were barely audible over the ambient city noise. To me, it seemed incredibly melancholic how the songs of the absent birds called out to a landscape no longer able to answer them. 
Needless to say, there is something profoundly uncanny and unsettling about forgotten songs. It is an allegory to ecological displacement caused by urban development. Many of the birds can still be encountered in the margins and wild pockets of the city that are still capable of supporting them. While there is an element of hope and whimsy to the project, the echo of the recorded bird song bouncing off the brick and concrete in an endless loop evokes a deeper sense of derangement characteristic of the urban Anthropocene. Thinking about how the space of loss and disappearance is continually performed by the empty bird cages prompts me to think more critically about the question, what has been done and thought about extinction in cities? Justine, we might start with you. I just uh, should have added that that was a City Road podcast episode, quite an unusual one, actually. But Justine, how is the media landscape and digital media changing academia? I think that's such a great example, that um, podcast and that recording there, because Donna is a human geographer who's really interested in the Anthropocene and you get to really go on a journey with her through the city and to sort of, I find podcasting really interesting because it's something where you're alone, you're often listening alone, you're not really listening in this sort of environment where we're all listening together, you're listening by yourself and often you're the only person having that experience but in that um, travel through the laneway you actually feel like Donna's there with you, taking you somewhere and I think that's a really interesting experience to have and um, as a researcher I think to be able to use different layers of meaning and to be able to layer that not just you know through publishing an article but through showing actually how that works in a multiple sort of space so there's a lot going on in that sound actually you know it starts with this quite gentle (laughs) music and then it goes to quite melancholy music and then back to the music and then the sound of the birds Mm. And right at the end, we turned the bird into an alarm. I right. don't know if you caught that yes. as a kind of symbol to global warming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot happening and to f- have that sort of, some of it's operating at an unconscious level, I think, um, and to have that sort of experience of wandering in the city and the layering that happens there. So um, I guess in a way, maybe this goes back to older experiences we have of radio when radio used to be more of a kind of entertainment medium <laughs> that we used to listen to radio a lot more, kind of moved away more into visual culture of TV and it's sort of bringing us back to that. And mm-hmm. I think what's also really interesting about the academic knowledge that can be shared in that way is it's also harking back to things which um, early sociologists really wanted to do about the city. They really wanted to go and listen to people's experiences and have um, outside, you know, the university (laughs) go into the streets and listen to what was happening on the streets. And this kind of gives a way of realising that impulse, which is quite a, you know, goes back to the 20s and 30s, I think. Mm. There's some parts of podcasting that aren't new. Yes, yeah, and have been sort of anticipated and now they're coming to coming into realisation. Also the fact that it's quite open, you know, that anyone can pretty much pick up a recorder and go and make their recording. There's very little um, technical kind of 
you know, you can have some technical knowledge, but it's not a very high level of technical knowledge. So it really opens it up to many, many people and many, many participants being involved. Yes. Miles, talk us through how we normally do a City Road episode. Well, I think having just listened to that, it's really interesting that first three minutes of audio, we really like prioritized the journey, right? So we really didn't get into her research that much. We actually spent three minutes getting to how she got to her research question, which is something maybe atypical for an academic podcast. You probably want to get right in and start talking about the research, which I think we definitely do at City Road. But I think when we make it, we find research that we think is interesting. We find an academic who we think has something interesting to share. And we work with them to best tell that research in an entertaining way and a way that will be digestible for the public. And often that is finding that journey, finding that narrative within that research to help tell a story. So as soon as we get them in the studio, that's kind of what we look for. We just kind of start asking questions and we try and find that moment that you've, we find with, with Donna, where she's taking us somewhere, where she's bringing us somewhere into the city, and that journey then brings us to her research. Yeah. Can you walk us through step by step, like literally how we produce an app? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll make contact with the academic. We'll send them through this little fact sheet, say, hey, this is what the show's about. Um, have a listen. This is kind of what we do. And then we ask them to kind of tell us what their research is and what they want to talk about. Um, so that way we kind of start, you know, hand in hand with the academic helping them you know, walk through their research. So they'll fill the sheet out, talk to us about their research, and then we'll kind of frame our questions around that. So we're going into the interview already with some knowledge um, about what's going on so we don't get there and like, oh, okay, tell me about your research. That's that's probably not going to work out for anybody. Um, so then they jump into the studio and we turn the mics on and we start asking questions. Um, and sometimes if it's really great talent and the researcher is really great at communicating that, it can take 25 minutes. Other times it can be 45 minutes to an hour where you're kind of working with that researcher and working with that academic to you know get the story out you know, say the right things and just kind of help them convey this this message. Um, then we turn the mics off and They then, say something fascinating. Yeah, they say something super <laughs> fascinating. No matter what, it's always super interesting. Um, and then we turn the mics off and then it turns into a collaboration between Dallas and I where either Dallas does the first edit and then I'll come in and look at it and say, I think this is really interesting. We need to do some scripting here. We need to convey the message more here. No one's going to understand this. I'm not an academic. I have no idea what you're talking about. That kind of thing. Or the other way around where I'll do the first edit, pull out some things and then send it to Dallas and he'll listen. And we kind of come together to make something we think the public will enjoy and also that the research will be happy with as well. Did I miss anything? Sounds perfect. And you're also doing a PhD on podcasting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm. it's very early doors, very early doors. Um, but I'm going to look into how podcasting can create subaltern counterpublics um, and how it can kind of be this really alternative um, activist space that, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's really open and can kind of provide the space for people um, and kind of democratize um, their voices, democratized voices outside of, say, like the media and a really mediated um, mass media sphere. So that's kind of what I'm doing and just getting into it. So Excellent. All right. We might move on to Shane and the award-winning Think Digital Futures now. 
there's an understanding of time which is I'm drawing on a philosopher here. Is that a, is that Yeah, who, which philosopher? Henri Bergson. So Bergson talks about time as something you can't measure in artificial sort of coded or mathematical ways. In other words, a moment can't be sort of contained neatly by the time and place in which it is pinned. In fact, you can't pin it. On Facebook and Instagram, the estimation is that every 24 hours we have going up approximately 400 million photographs. The photograph is meant to be a static moment, and visually it is. But when you encounter a photograph, you will always encounter it with whatever layers of memory and experience have built up between the period of the photograph being taken and the moment of looking at it. The experience of the photograph is one where you understand how much change takes place because here is this image of something that is still and seems to be exactly as it was, but here is this knowledge that it's never going to be that way again. In fact, that moment is very much gone. So that was I Was Here. So tell us about your show. What's your show about? Yeah, uh, so I produce a show called Think Digital Futures, um, and I get support from UTS just up the road. Basically, they uh, a couple years ago decided to put funding into kind of a suite of podcasts that were designed to, uh, I guess, train their academics to be able to engage more with the public. So they started three shows, Health, Sustainability and Digital Futures. Uh, So it's in the third year now, and it's kind of changed a lot since it first started. Um, But basically, we still keep that ethos of being a vehicle for research communication. Um, The Think Digital Futures looks at mostly tech and ethics. um, And I kind of start with an idea, kind of similar to City Road. I start with with an idea, whether it's like 3D printed guns, um, like that one, which is about photography and time. I've looked at... uh, like the online sex trafficking bill that was recently put out by the states. And then I kind of search for an academic who can speak to it, normally one to three academic voices in the show. And we just expand the issue out and we talk for about 20 to 25 minutes, kind of going into the ethical debates, whether robots are taking all our jobs, all those kinds of things. Um, Yeah, and turn it into a a podcast. And what's it like working with academics? Because they're good at writing. Are they good at talking? Um, I'm going to say... I'm going to say they have stories to tell. Um, whether or not they're good at telling them is um, another issue. But I, I actually really love interviewing academics. Um, I'm kind of the type of person who corners someone at a party and like throws questions at them um, until I find out every detail about their life. So having an academic in the studio is perfect for me because it's a real chance to like sit someone down and pick their brains about a topic that they know a lot about and that they're really passionate about. Um, So, yeah, I actually love talking to academics and I think there's definitely sometimes it's a challenge for people to communicate their research. And I think that's not necessarily um, a person's personality. That's also, I think, the way people are trained um, and the way they've been kind of shoehorned into a really narrow 
framework of, of research and output. Um, but I, but I enjoy the experience and hopefully they like being interviewed as well. If you were going to give an academic five tips for being better in the studio, what would that, what would they be? <laughs> uh, or three. I don't know if it's like, I don't know if I would write like a wiki how on, you know, this is what you should do in an interview. Um, I think if you're going to be interviewed, um, you would obviously tailor it to whatever you're being interviewed for. Uh, news is going to be different to a podcast. Um, I know that when I'm interviewing, I just like having a conversation with people. So when people, um, I know some people like to get a set of bullet points on every topic they're going to talk about. And I politely say, um, that's not how I do things. Um, just come into the studio and we're going to chat however long the conversation goes for. Um, and then whatever comes up is what we'll talk about. So I, I'm pretty casual and loose with the conversations. But um, yeah, I think listen to, like, know what you're going into. Um, know the type of show. Know what they might expect of you. Um, and yeah, I guess relax. What about you, Miles? Any tips? Uh, I think the notes thing is definitely a big one. Um, yeah, it breaks my heart when I see an academic walk in the door with notes. Um, so that, I think, is a big one. Um, if you want to bring notes and you feel really uncomfortable about it, bring the notes and then just like turn them over and say, I want to just do this conversation. And then at the end, I'll go back and look at my notes to see if I missed anything. I think relax is also a big thing. Um, and also I, I find that a lot of the barriers that we'll run into when talking to academics are often self-imposed in terms of, yeah, like the culture of academia, Shane just talked about, you know, outputs and really, really narrow, narrow concentration of their research. So if you can just relax and have a conversation about your own experience, about your own research, you're literally the expert and that's why you're in the room so i think it and this is probably not what people want to hear but if you can pull back some of those self-imposed barriers that academics put up to protect themselves from um a very you know cynical and um oppressive academic system yeah if i could just add to that as well i think um yeah i think there is those self-imposed barriers but at the same time um it, like it just comes with practice you get you get better at it you get better at communicating you learn like you see the interviewer and you kind of learn what's working and, and what's not and if you're really serious about like research communication and public engagement um it's something that like a lot of academics are starting their own podcast now um I think it's something that's really useful to learn um, and there are people like like us, like in the community radio space, who really want to hear it as well. Um, yeah, and I, if sorry if I'm going over time here, but also I don't necessarily want to detach the media's role in some of that anxiety as well. Historically, the media has been pretty bad at communicating research, and I understand um, like some animosity or trepidation going into media interviews. Yeah, I think you can probably trust community radio, but say if the Murdoch press gives you a call, there, there might be some things that that are rightfully pushed back upon. So while it's really easy for us to sit here and say, oh, you guys should be doing a better job, uh, I want to also acknowledge the role that the media has in this as well. And hopefully the people you talk to and the people academics talk to are there to help communicate that research, but that might not always be the case. 
We've got someone at the door. Would somebody like to go and answer that? And I think we uh, should all give a little bit of a cheer when they come in. <laughs> They're still there. <laughs> come on in. <laughs> Have a seat. Okay, so we're going to shift gears a little bit now. We've been talking about pretty much academics talking about their own research, typically peer-reviewed research. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit to podcasting as a research method. So using podcast as a way to collect and analyze data, or maybe not, I'll let you explain it in a minute. Uh, this is a clip from Anya's uh, postdoc project called Winston, recorded in Fiji with some Fiji partners. I absolutely love this clip. I play it whenever I can. And in any public event like this, uh, you'll hear me play this one. Hi, I am a Fijian. I'm a storyteller. I am a Fijian storyteller. But today, I bury a library of stories I'll never learn to retell. See, stories in my culture are like books. There are stories of our shape-shifting gods who take the form of sea creatures or birds so that children don't fear the sea or the jungle. There are stories of how a certain leaf can heal cuts and bruises, which ones cure coughs and the ones that are poison. See, our stories are our history. The Westerners took it and called it myths and legends. We have constantly told our stories through the generations. Stories of gods and heroes, open ocean voyaging using stars for navigation, wars fought, wars lost, paths of demigods, origins of tribes, our relation from tribe to tribe, which trail, which rivers our clan crossed to be where they are now, the meaning of our village names, the time when the first roads were built, stories of who had the first concrete house in the village, stories of our kin going overseas for education, and till today, our stories of the not-so-distant past are still being told to eager ears listening around mats under the breadfruit tree. The stories that you will hear today are stories about cyclones. They are stories of people, of lands and of oceans, of sadness and hope, of anger and resistance. These stories take the shape of four poems, written by poets, artists and a scientist from the poetry shop Fiji, Christelle Lavaki, Atueta Rambuka, Amelia Rigsby and Peter Sipelli. You better start at the beginning with this one and with the project itself. Tell us about your project and how you came to be in Fiji collecting these stories. Sure. Um, well, as you said, um, I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Research Fellow at the University of Wollongong um, in the School of Geography and Sustainable Communities. And um, I won the Vice-Chancellor's Fellowship uh, for a project called Climates of Listening, which is a project that takes place over five Pacific field sites, uh, Fiji, Kiribati, the Marshall Islands, and I'm about to go to Nauru and to Papua New Guinea, um, working on community-led responses to climate change. 
So the way the project was initially um, kind of born was because my my background is in political activism um, and in community radio, and I had a lot of contact with people from the Pacific that were sharing things about responses to climate change on social media that was very different to the narratives um, that were being reported in the, you know, popular media, I suppose. And these stories just kind of kept coming and they were really in contradiction um, to what the big media outlets were saying. And so I thought, well, given the experience that I have in community broadcast, it would be really great to actually work with um, environmental justice activists and organisations in the Pacific to amplify what they're saying and try to bring a little bit of multidimensionality um, to the media narratives because the kinds of media narratives that we get in Australia and they're perpetuated across the Pacific as well, to be honest, are two narratives, either a story of resilience um, or a story of vulnerability. And the resilience is a, is a story, I'm sure that all of you are probably quite familiar with it, um, of people fighting back against climate change, um, people organising to deal with the devastation of cyclones um, like Cyclone Winston, which that particular piece was about, you know, people trying to deal with climate change through mitigation, which in reality in the Pacific is more likely to be adaptation. Um, and... The counter story to that one is the story of victims, which, again, everybody is probably very familiar with. Um, it's pictures of devastation. It's children standing amongst blown down houses. It's um, graveyards that have been inundated by seawater. It's coastal erosion. So these are the two kinds of stories that are really being narrated about the Pacific as the frontline region of climate change. And what I discovered and what Winston this particular piece was a part of is actually there is a huge range obviously of stories that people are telling and experiences that people are having and all that needs to really happen is for them to be amplified and given airtime. The way this piece came about was that I was working with um, a bunch of Indigenous poets and they had actually written poetry in response to Cyclone Winston in the aftermath of Cyclone Winston. And I'd been commissioned by um, a, a contemporary museum in Spain to create a piece about uh climate change and natural disaster and so I thought it would be really great to do that collaboratively with people who are living through it rather than to just kind of write about it from a position of having no experience of it whatsoever. So we worked together, um, they basically contributed their poems and we collaboratively kind of constructed a, a larger story around it and this particular iteration of it was just their poetic recordings stripped of any of the sound design stripped of any of the other narration um, because I thought it was really important to just let the voices be themselves without any other kind of mm. anything. Can you tell us a little bit more about voice. I think we need to think carefully as academics when we are making podcasts about the type of who we hear on the radio, why we're hearing particular voices, who's missing from the debate. I mean, my background, as I said, was in 
is in community radio and in DIY radio, so building radio actually, um, as well as being part of a community radio station. And one of the things that attracted me to radio initially was the fact that there was a possibility for people to be heard that would not be heard in mainstream media, um, especially in reports around climate change, um, which is my area of inquiry at the moment. There are so many stories that are coming out that are representative of people who have literally not participated in that representation whatsoever. Um, And I think that it's a very detrimental process. Um, And I think we do need to ask ourselves whose voices are we amplifying and to what ends as well. And what do we do when we amplify our voices over people who are actually having those experiences? Like it seems like a bit of a no-brainer, to be honest. Um, But it is still a really common practice, I think, in a lot of media representation. Um, And so one of the things that I'm working on as part of this project is actually running podcasting workshops with people and um, with some of the poets who helped produce Winston, um, we created an introduction to podcasting manual, uh, which is specifically for a Pacific audience, but I use it to run workshops with other people as well. Um, So basically we created a two-day workshop uh, where we gave people Zoom recorders and left them with um, environmental justice organisations as well and taught them how to make a podcast from start to finish. And by the end of the two days, everybody had something to upload onto SoundCloud. So I think that's a really good... I think that's a really good thing to do because when we talk about giving other people um, space to speak, I know it's sometimes easy to say that podcasting is a very easy thing to do without much technology, but it does actually need technology and you do actually need to have skills, you know. So I think we do have to think about how we skill people up and resource people so that people do tell their own stories and it's not just us. You're listening to the Podcasting the Urban series. The final part of our panel discussion with Shane Anderson, Anya Kangeiser, Justine Lloyd and Miles Herbert is up next. For full bios, just head over to our website at cityroadpod.org. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you soon.